Welcome to Keanu Club, like a cool breeze over the mountains. This is episode 25, Point Break from 1991, recorded live from Cage Club Podcast Network headquarters. I'm Joey Lewandowski. And I'm Mike Manzi. With us today, very special guest, host of the newest podcast on the Cage Club Podcast Network, now and again, Chris Mattiello. Hello, Chris. Hey, how's it going, guys? Good. This is only the second one I think we've ever recorded in the history of the network in person. Mm -hmm. I guess you did your first now and again was in person. True. So this is like old hat to you. Sure. This is his preference. But this is the first one we've ever recorded while Point Break was on the TV while we were recording something. I'm looking at Gary Busey's teeth right now. It's, I mean, and on a 65-inch TV, they are bigger than ever. And in HD. And in HD. So this movie is, of the Keanu movies, of like the most important Keanu movies, this has got to be one of the first, if not, no, well, I mean, there's Bill and Ted's Excellent Adventure. This is the second really sort of, like, if they're doing the Mount Rushmore of Keanu movies, this has got to be the second entry, right? Yeah, I believe so. You know, this is a benchmark moment because he's attempting to break out of his typecasting with this role, and I think that and other reasons is what makes this sort of a pivotal movie in his career. And what's interesting is actually, coincidentally, the scene that's on the screen now is the one where he's buying the surfboard from that little kid. And it's like the complete opposite of what we've seen so far, that in all these movies, and I've been complaining about it for like the last 15 things we've recorded, he's always a high schooler. Now, he's essentially the same age as he's been in all these movies, but this kid's like, hey, old man, why are you trying to learn how to surf? And it's just like, oh, well, Every other movie, he's like this dumb kid who has no future or, you know, has no ex- no life experience. And here he's just, he's way too old to surf. And he's going to go right back to that shortly, isn't he? I mean, he's not going to be the FBI agent for very long, if I'm not mistaken, based on what uh, Keanu is in the future. Yeah, no, I think this movie gives him a chance to experiment a little bit more. You know, he'll be doing Gus Van Sant films. My own private Idaho. My own private Idaho. So, and it's not going to be till speed that he kind of really, for me, I think reemerges as like, oh yeah, he's an action star. Like, oh yeah, Keanu Reeves. I remember him from Point Break. Yeah, that's in like three or four years, I think, from now. Mm -hmm. But like, you know, the the next movie that we're going to do is Bill and Ted's Bogus Journey. So he's going right back to high school or the high school age. Oh, well, weren't these two movies released within like a week of each other? Yeah, so I mean, if you're hearing this podcast the day it comes out, by the time you hear the next one, it's like you could have gone, and they're coming out on Friday. So I mean, like, you literally could have gone to the theater and seen these movies in the same time frame it took to like wait for this next episode. This is the craziest eight days like other people have had movies come out in real life when we're recording this just because we've passed the anniversary of this movie coming out and there was a couple articles that went out about other actors who have had two movies out in theaters at the same time but I mean nothing now looking back has been as big as these two movies because this is crazy I mean you have a bona fide 90s blockbuster action movie and then you have a sequel to one of the most popular movies that Keanu Reeves has ever done and you have both of them in theaters I mean if if we were doing Keanu Club Live like we'd be like going nuts (laughs) well the 90s are back so we're doing it right yeah there's a Clinton running for office (laughs) he's got a new album I caught a Pokemon on the way over here I am drinking limited edition release of Crystal Pepsi now are you drinking Crystal Pepsi because we're recording Point Break or because you actually love it still no it's disgusting can I try it (laughs) absolutely it's like if Pepsi decided to add like a really acidic fake yeah. sweet aftertaste I, I remember I remember when it came out and disliking it immediately and buying like a giant thing of it and just down the drain it went so it looks like water it actually sort of more looks like in a way like vodka because it like doesn't sort of react the way that water is supposed mm-hmm. to it's yes. thicker yeah is it I mean is this flat or was it like was it bubbly when you opened it it was bubbly when I opened okay. it and colder hold on live taste <laughs> testing on the air yeah <laughs> 
It's like they remove the brown and the flavor. Kind of, yeah. It's well, they weird. definitely remove the brown. Mm-hmm. It's not bad. Did I try? I mean, uh, I feel like okay, this is... it's been like is, 20 years. This is part the of the experience. I've never had Crystal Pepsi before. I've never had the original. I've never had this until I don't know just now. Oh, yeah, it just tastes like Pepsi. Yeah, it's not great. Yeah, it's not great, but I mean, if we're watching Point Break, we've got to be drinking Crystal Pepsi because yeah. that is the <laughs> drink of choice <laughs> for surfers. Really get me in that, uh, that mindset. Maybe I should do a podcast about 90s music, you know? We are in the peak of nostalgia on the Cage Club Podcast Network right now with Now and Again. It's nuts. If you haven't listened to it yet, actually, I mean, I know that we're on a tangent right now, so we might as well finish out the tangent before we get back sure, to Keanu. Sure. Chris, if you want to explain what your new podcast is, because it does go hand in hand with Crystal Pepsi, Absolutely. with the movie that just celebrated its 25th anniversary, what's Now and Again about? Now and Again is a podcast about music and memories, and we use the Now That's What I Call Music okay. compilation series as a jumping off point. To kind of talk about not only popular music, but what nostalgia is, what it was like to grow up in the 90s, how music can sort of cement itself as the soundtrack to uh, important or uh, horribly embarrassing moments of your life. And yeah, we just kind of use it as a jumping off point to wax nostalgic. Now, rumor has it that your November episodes are going to be your best episodes of all time. Do you care to comment on that? Well, I heard the guest has a really high opinion of himself, so, <laughs> so we'll see if, if the fans agree. But the first one is out. This episode comes out September 16th, so the second episode just dropped either yesterday or today, depending on how the release schedule goes. Yeah. So the full first volume of Now That's What I Call Music, you can listen to it, you can relive it. Mm-hmm. What what year did that come out? I believe that was 98. So, I mean, we're still in the 90s. I mean, this is, if you're not listening to it already, what's wrong with you? Yeah. But back to Point Break, if we want to go back to Point Break. <laughs> this is, I don't know definitively, but I feel like this might be our first, or if not the first, one of the first, female directors that we've had in Keanu Club? Uh, I think it's the second. It wasn't River's Edge also directed by a woman, either that or, or Seeking Justice. I, I feel like we... I don't think we've had one yet. Unless there's something that I, I missed, uh, didn't click on, but it looks like we've only had male directors. And I know we made a big deal about it on Cage oh, wait, Club. Wait, 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 wait. Hold on. The one where the kid killed himself. Permanent record. Mike, you are right. We had Marissa Silver directed Permanent Record. So that was just a couple years ago. That was three years ago in Keanu times. But, you know, this is episode 25, and it's only our second female director. And arguably, you know, along with Domino, Cage Club favorite, I think maybe Catherine Bigelow might be... Is she the biggest female director of all time? She's certainly the most celebrated. Yeah, I think she's the most well-known. She's got an Academy Award, right? I mean, Nora Ephron, but I think she's since passed. Um, who was uh, Coppola? has got to be up there. Sophia Coppola. I mean, but that's that's I what think... you're saying, Domino. That's because oh, okay. that's what she went by when she was little. She was Ooh. Domino Coppola. Just don't know, just Ooh. Domino. You know what's what's interesting about just the idea of the woman directing this is that I I feel like we're looking at it through the female gaze, and a lot is talked about the male gaze, the female gaze in film, where right. you know even if you have say like a full female lead, if you have a man directing that movie, there's still interference through like his perspective. But what's cool about this, and what also you know movies like. American Psycho and Wayne's World, which were also directed by women, like I feel like they really get like the testosterone, the attitude, like they really have a great understanding of male attitude. Mm-hmm. If that makes sense, you know. What sure. I, mean? I can't imagine this movie. Well, actually, I can't imagine this movie being directed um, by a male director, and it just becomes the hyper masculine kind of testosterone fueled action film that this is kind of um, 
I don't know if it's parodying it, but it's it's definitely commenting on it. Yeah. And this isn't the first of these early 90s, late 80s action movies to kind of comment on the hyper-masculinity of action movies of the time. Commando, starring Arnold Schwarzenegger, mm-hmm. kind of does it. Predator, yeah. as well. Yeah, like any Shane of... Black written film in the, yeah, in the and late it's perfect, 80s, early 90s. Because this is a movie about Keanu Reeves and Patrick Swayze wanting to fuck, but they can't <laughs> due to societal pressures. Like, yeah. that is the subtext of this movie. Well, yes, because there is... I was going to say... I wanted to make a point about how there's really only one female character in this movie, and she's just like a sex object, basically. But later in the movie, there's this really kind of funny scene, and I guess it's sort of... I mean, you can look at it in a lot of different ways. It could be a subversion of things. But she's, like, convinced that Keanu's about to tell her that he loves her. But that's not about what he's going to tell her at all. He's going to be like, I'm an FBI agent. And she just, like, misconstrues it. And it's at that moment you're like, oh, right, no, he's not in love with her. He's in love with Bodhi. He wants to have sex with Bodhi. He wants to sit Miss Mickle's tea with Bodhi. I mean, because within, like, you know two or three times of hanging out with Lori Petty with Tyler Ann, they have sex on the beach. Yeah. Like, it's, it just, it's happened. So, I mean, I guess he sort of, he conquered her, and now now he has set his, sets his sights on uh, hyper-masculine Bodie. He does it to get close to Patrick Swayze, because I think he only decides to uh, sleep with her after he finds out that Bodie had been there first. Yeah, and I think his whole MO here is, like, no attachments, no attachments. Like, he's trying to do these things to crack the case, to find the bank robbers. And he doesn't give a shit about Taylor Ann, you know? Like, he straight up, like, creeps his way into her life. Like, that is some... And watching it again this time, it made me realize, like, he's not especially a very nice guy. This time around, when I realized, oh, he's just lying and prying on this girl's emotions and the fact that her parents are dead to get this in with her. And it's not even the in to meet Bodie. It's just the in to learn to surf. Like, he could go learn to surf and pay money from anybody, but that he actively pursues her that way, it's just, it's very strange to me. Well, because there's that one scene where he, like, he's there with the female hacker or whatever, and he's just like, dead parents, I have my in. It's just like, I feel like that's also sort of a commentary, like, not just that, but... All the cops in this movie are sort of despicable in one way or another. Mm-hmm. Like, both Keanu and Gary Busey don't play by the rules. That sort of drives everybody crazy. They have this other sort of cop duo who just, like, hates them and everything. Like, can't believe that they have to waste time on these crazy theories. Their boss is grade A, you know, alpha dog with no, like, real no experience. Because, you know, Gary Busey mm-hmm. calls him out for not having respect for his elders. The cops are sort of, like, in a way, like the bad guys of this movie. Like, you're almost kind yeah. of, mm-hmm. in a way, rooting for... Patrick Swayze, until, maybe until he kidnaps Tyler Ann at the end of the movie, yeah. that you really see, like, oh, right, they are criminals. Yeah, I almost feel like the Tyler Ann character is almost like this cipher for Catherine Bigelow herself, you know, where she's like, I can be the only girl in, the, in this movie on this set, play as hard as the boys, and show them up. Plus, her character makes this comment where she's like, you know, all this is bullshit. Like, this male testosterone, joyride, whatever jerk-off contest you want to call it. She's like, it's just, it's not really what's important to her. It's she feels like he's getting all caught up in this male macho bullcrap and I don't know I think that the movie starts off saying look how cool it is and it ends off saying look how kind of dumb it is (laughs) yeah hoping I'll buy into this bonsai bullshit like the rest of all these movies what are you talking about you got the kamikaze look Johnny I've seen it Bodie can smell it a mile away. He'll take you to the edge. Past. Hey, Bodie. Johnny has his own demons. Don't you, Johnny? Her role is important as, textually, she's the love interest, but she exists to be 
Keanu's beard, basically. Yeah. In this movie, she's she's got this very short hair mm-hmm. and, uh, and a feminine voice, uh, like a, a girly voice. I, I would say she's like um, the movie tries at times to not make her a sex symbol to take the sexuality away from her. She's just one of the boys, mm. and that is why Keanu is attracted to her more than anything else. <laughs> <laughs> well, I don't disagree because if you look at her and Keanu, they're almost these weird mirror images. Lori Petty is a girl with short hair yep. and Keanu is this boy with long hair and he almost looks more effeminine than her at times. So I think that's on purpose. Like, I don't oh, think absolutely. that's an accident whatsoever. And Swayze just looks like the epitome of masculinity no matter where. He's like a lion in yeah, this I mean, movie. <laughs> Swayze is the like, king he, of the pride. He's beautiful in this movie to the point where like everybody, men and women just want to be with him because I mean Bodhi is just that's I mean that's sort of like the whole point of Bodhi right short for Bodhisattva he's like you know all-knowing and just sort of like he's he's basically like the perfect person he also yeah. just happens to be a notorious bank robber who you know threatens to kill people and steals money and you know lives his life on the surf that's Bodhi they call him the Bodhisattva he's a modern savage <laughs> he's a real searcher what's he searching for the ride the ultimate ride. Guy's even crazier than you, Johnny. Yeah, and he's he's great in this movie. Can any of you guys think of another time where Swayze uh, had some facial hair? No. I, no. I kind of prefer him clean-shaven. <laughs> um, it looks weird to me. You're right. Lion is a pretty good description for it. He was unrecognizable to me when I first saw this. It was one of those moments where I was like, where's Patrick Swayze in this movie? Because I had grown up watching a lot of Dirty Dancing because of my sister. That okay. was like my all-time favorite movie. And and so I know him mostly from that. And when he showed up in here, it's great. It's almost, it's almost like, in a way, he starts off playing his type where he's like this soulful, nurturing type of mentor. But then by the end, he's this psychotic, bank-robbing bad guy. You know, it's almost like he shifts against type by the end of the movie. And I wonder if that's maybe one reason he took it because he gets to show sort of that meaner side we never really get out of any of his other performances. Yeah, he's he's a good person that you can cast as a sensitive soul and as kind of a slightly unhinged guy. Yeah, yeah. I mean, Roadhouse, he'll gently make love uh, against a rocky <laughs> fireplace and then rip someone's throat out with yeah. his bare hands. So two things. Apparently he originally auditioned to play Johnny Utah. Wow. And obviously did not get that because I went to Keanu Reeves. But he says that he did identify with Bodhi because they both shared, quote, that wild man edge. And we'll talk about it later when we actually get to that part in the movie, but it turns out that Patrick Swayze was huge into skydiving. He did like 55 jumps before he died. He was able to do one in the movie, which is sort of like the the most important jump, really, cinematically, which is right near the end when Keanu jumps out of the plane without a parachute to make sure he catches up to him. Producers are like, you can't do these, because apparently he wanted to because he never used a stunt double before. And so, because he'd done like chase scenes and fight scenes and everything, and he, never used a, he never used a stunt double. He convinced them to let him do the surfing scenes but they wouldn't let him do the parachute, the skydiving scenes, except for that one. But then it turned out that apparently, what I read online, is that he fractured four ribs while doing the surfing scene, so maybe wow. he shouldn't have done that. And that's always tough when you have to take out insurance policies on your <laughs> actors, and you're like, please don't jump out of an airplane. As a 90s action movie, there is a lot of crazy action in this, and apparently yes. 
there was a whole other thing where, like, Catherine Bigelow and the writers and everybody, they, they brought in, like, stunt coordinators and fight coordinators on the weekends to, like, train people how to fight properly. And apparently Anthony Kiedis is the only one who doesn't show up. Anthony Kiedis of the Red Hot Chili Peppers, who's just sort of this, like, surf punk kind of guy. Yeah. That's actually him? Yeah. yeah. Oh, yeah. My. Okay, because <laughs> I was going to call that group of idiots the Red Hot Chili Peppers because one looked so much like yeah. No, that's Anthony actually Kiedis. him. That, that's, that's incredible. The, um, that was the original reason I actually saw this movie. Because <laughs> when I was in high school, I heard I was a huge Chili Peppers fan and I knew Flea was in Back to the Future 2 and I heard Anthony Kiedis was in this movie so that's why I originally rented it and you know he's in two minutes of the movie right. about a half an hour in so I mean I stayed for the rest of it I loved it come for the Kiedis stay for the Swayze there you go he was the only person the only actor to have missed the fight choreography and so that's why if you've seen the fight he just gets knocked out immediately because he just wasn't there mm. so they wrote us so they're like oh you didn't show up okay like one punch you're down like you're just out of the scene well he kind of gets like rolled out of the <laughs> fight and then Busey sees him so they gave him a little something to do but it wasn't action oriented that's, that's interesting because as I was watching this and I haven't seen this movie in over a decade probably I wasn't super into it for about the first 20-25 minutes this time this most recent time yes and one of the things that took me out of it a little bit was that first fight scene because I thought it was hideous I thought it was um, shot poorly I thought it was edited poorly um, choreographed poorly that now kind of makes a little more sense I think the same way about the fist fight at the end of the movie but that said Catherine Bigelow every other action sequence the foot chase the car chase the gun stuff is shot incredibly and she has quite an eye for action Mm -hmm. it just surprised me and a little bit disappointed me that um, the fist fights were I thought really sloppy I agree I was watching this going I feel like she's got a tremendous sense of direction and and not just like she knows how to direct people but she is aware of the surroundings there's one sequence that I was just like wow technically that must have been a headache and it's when it's when uh, Keanu first sees Bodhi surfing and Lori Petty's telling him who he is and as we cut to Bodie getting out someone tosses him a football mm-hmm. and then they cut back to Keanu and then cut back to Bodie and he throws the football to his crew and they inter- and it's just like the way it's laid out is just really smooth and nice and she's always introducing new information on screen very well and yeah that foot chase scene at the end between him and uh, Swayze you know, one of my favorite foot chases of all time you know and uh, the opening bank robbing scene is like really intense and even this time I was like adrenalized by it and the way it was done when they burst into that bank with those masks on it's just like all business <laughs> the ex-presidents I want to mention this now because there's another time really to sort of bring it up but the last time I saw this movie was a couple months ago in a theater and there was this band called the Great White Caps who perform a live surf music score to the movie and they probably played like the movie's just over two hours there's probably live music for like an hour of it but all those scenes like the bank robbery scene, the fight scene that we're looking at right now, they're just, like, you don't hear the dialogue. They just play, like, everything, they just play surf music, and everything is just so much more exciting about it, just because this movie is great in the 90s way that, like, you could really not look up for three minutes and then still, like, be able to catch up and see what's going on. Like, there is subtext. If you want to go deeper, you can, because it is sort of subverting things. But if you don't treat it like an action movie, like, you don't have to watch this movie with sound. You can still appreciate, really, what's going on. And so to have this like high energy, just really loud surf music in your face is just so, so great. And so I don't know, I don't know if they really tore, I think it was just sort of like a special occasion that they played, but you know, it, it's just so good. Like it's, because they were saying that, how do you make a surf movie or a movie about surfing with no surf music in it? And there's maybe one song, but it's just, the music in this like doesn't really necessarily fit unless, I guess well, maybe unless you treat it like a love story. Or, you know, it's... Which it is to me. 
and to me it's almost like a bank robber movie or like something more like that you know it's very kind of hard to pinpoint where this might lay but wherever you sort of put it it fits in that way but I agree with the music like they're just all around I was kind of underwhelmed by the use of music in this film at moments I thought they it would really make an impact uh, the opening bank robbing scene has no music and that's very cool because it's very tense right um, so it makes it feel on purpose but later in the film I did expect there to just be maybe more of a bombastic score at times whereas it almost sounds like we're at the spa you know when they're skydiving I almost want like these drums or a beat going on but instead it's just very dreamy I mean I never really thought about why the music is what it is until we were just talking about it it's not a romance movie, but it sort of is, and that, I don't know, like, the music, obviously the music is intentionally picked for, like, it's in there, it's thoughtfully in there, like, it's in there for a reason. That's the music that's going through Keanu's head the first time he sees Bodhi, (laughs) just riding those waves, and his eyes just get real big. Well, I'm willing to give the film its mulligan on the music, because um, I do think it does have plot holes and stuff. There are things about it, watching it this time with the Eye of Keanu Club, where I was like, wait a minute, wait a minute, and I want to talk about those as we go. But I still enjoy this movie. I consider it very entertaining, and therefore I really like it, even though I'm willing to understand people will watch this and go like, how could you like this, something like this? But I guess you just have to get it. The way you just said that made me think of something. Do you think this is a good movie? I... I actually am not too sure. I think at the time, I think at the time, yes, it was, it's well made, but parts of it feel missing or I don't know, things I never noticed before about it where I was like, well, this doesn't make much sense. There's just more plot holes than I realized. Like what? Okay. So I was telling you uh, last night, like, um, Keanu gets arrested, right? Oh, right. At the end of the movie. Yeah. And Busey kind of breaks him out of jail in a way, or he's going to take him in. But really, he takes him to the airport to confront Bodhi. And Keanu gets on the plane, they skydive, he rescues his girlfriend, and we kind of cut to like a year later. But shouldn't Keanu be in the system? Shouldn't he have been arrested or at least lost his FBI credentials? And and instead, he's a full-on agent still. He's been, you know, using all their resources. They're not even in America. They've gone, you know, out of jurisdiction just to find Bodhi, a bank robber in L.A. So it doesn't detract from my overall entertainment, but there are a couple things that made me wonder this time. I'm with you. I don't know if this is a good movie. It's definitely enjoyable. It's certainly fun. Um, Everyone in it knows what they're doing. (laughs) Keanu and Patrick Swayze, I think, get their roles. Sure. Not just in regards to the action and the extreme aspect, but I think they definitely make eyes at each other. I think Gary Busey is perfect. I think Dr. Cox plays his role super well. Everyone's great in the movie. So then I think that's enough of uh, endorsement, right? I mean, you could have a terrible script and then everything else can be so good that the plot holes and the script problems really don't matter in the end as long as you enjoyed yourself and and you had a good time. I think it's paced horribly. I think it's overlong. Um, Two hours almost on the nose for a movie like this where there's a lot of chaff I think they could have cut. Yeah, or at least reordered. Like maybe that mm-hmm. first skydiving sequence should have been totally. not right before the next skydiving <laughs> sequence. <laughs> yeah, and they do a lot of sort of lingering, romantic kind of fetishing of the surfing of Keanu. They do take their time to really dwell on things, but uh, but that's part of the style, I think, as well. Like it has that vibe of we're a movie and we're not going to hide it. We're just unabashedly going to pull movie logical tricks here and there and not care. I'm curious, and we're looking at the party scene right now, uh, <laughs> which is 
I think I don't even remember. I think my eyes glazed over when I was watching this last night. This well, part. it's set to Jimi Hendrix's "If Six Was Nine. and uh, there's a fire breather, and there's a fire breather. Do you think in 1991 people who were actually surfers? looked at this and went, yeah, man, that's us? Or do you think they looked at it like people in the 94 or whenever looked at hackers and were like, Jesus Christ. <laughs> well, that's what I wonder, because apparently Keanu spent time with surfers and with police officers, and I think he also went to, like, training camp for some college football team or something, because he's sort of figuring everything out. So I think he would have gotten a sense of what everything was like. And he's a big enough star at the time that it, I feel like he would have had the pull to say, I don't think this is necessarily accurate. I mean... This party does seem sort of like a all right. Like, what do you envision surfers' parties to it be like? like the, a scene from the Lost Boys. I don't know. It just looks <laughs> crazy. Like, it's all just weird. Everybody's super hyper animated. This movie is like it's somehow a parody and not a parody. It's like an homage. And no matter what point you want to make, like, this is almost like the perfect movie to write a college paper about. Because no matter what point you want to make. You can find the proof in this movie. Oh, you can get freshman lit classes hell for this movie. <laughs> <laughs> That's the thing. Like, it feels accessible, right? Like, I feel like I'm getting to know this world of surfers, but I also feel like I don't think this is how they really are and interact to a degree. I mean, you do have Swayze there, who is part of that culture for real, so I'm sure he would also be saying, I've never been to a surfer's party where he had fire breathers in his room. So I don't know. I, I, I'm going to say I'm going to say it's like 50-50, right? I'm, I'm going to say like Hollywood saw the authentic surfer culture and was like, we just need to bump it up a couple degrees for film because we only have one sequence of this, so we got to embed it into the audience's mind. So I think we're seeing like a surfer party on steroids. Yeah, it's interesting that Lori Petty, Keanu, and Swayze all get to act like human beings, but everyone else in the ex-presidents or every other extra is doing like, whoa, brah, this is totally <laughs> awesome, I'm Michelangelo, or also maybe Keanu Reeves in Bill and Ted. Like, they're just doing yeah. that terrible surfer voice and being ridiculous, whereas the main characters get to be humans. Yeah. And I don't know if that's to show, uh, to make those characters stand out more as humans, whereas the rest are just window dressing. I feel like that's kind yeah. of the point. Like, don't worry about the rest of these people. Like, right. these people, they're not important. We're, like, telling you right off the bat, like, you don't care about them. Like, when the group of surfers you call the Red Hot Chili Peppers show up, they're all such caricatures. It's like, oh, we, they're not going to come back in the movie. We don't need to worry about them. We know that one way or the other, this is probably the last we're going to see of them. And it's almost to the point where, like, when they first come up to me, even though I've seen this movie before, I'm like, is this Bodhi? No, that's not Bodhi Surf Crew. Like, it almost feels like, well, just who are these yeah. random guys that just all of a sudden have a problem with Keanu? Yeah. And it mm. seems like there's going to be, like, another thread. Then as soon as you see the way that they act, the way that they look, and the way that they talk, it's like, oh, okay, they're, they're just, yeah. don't don't pay them any mind. Those guys sort of become, like, a red herring for his mission a little while, right? He ends up thinking those are the, oh, they must be the bank robbers because look how they're dressed. They're full of tattoos. They're, <laughs> they're copping attitudes on the waves. Like, there's, it's got to be them. They're red hot herring peppers. I mean, is he just like, these guys look like criminals? I so think he's yeah, just he must dumb. Be the bank robbers? It takes him a full hour in this movie. It's an hour and one minute in to finally realize, oh, shit, it's Bodhi. Well, there's, there's a part where, and again, I was talking about the pacing of this movie. After the big chase sequence, and after he he does the, the shooting the gun in the air, when they look longingly into each other's eyes on the, after that, <laughs> at the end of that chase, where then Bodhi and the crew come to get him, but Keanu is playing it off like, maybe they don't know that I'm an <laughs> yeah. agent. 
Yeah. What the hell is wrong with you? <laughs> and yeah. why, does this, why is this happening right now? Everyone knows, you guys know, the audience knows, there's no actual tension here. There's just some weird stuff that seems unnecessary. Yeah, that first skydiving scene felt like it should have occurred before his yes. cover was blown because they come up to his house and there's like this huge elephant in the room. No one is mentioning any of it, but yet there was a scene right before where Bodhi's gang was like, dude, he's a, he's a narc, he's a cop, man, he's a fed. And Bodhi's <laughs> like, I'll take, I'll handle it, I'll handle it. They do a goddamn love chain in the air as they're falling. <laughs> well, isn't that... That's, that's the also... thing. Are they trying to lure him over to their side? Would it have been better if he had a talk with Keanu and was like, here's what we're about, we want you to join us, you're a zombie, man, you're a fed, drop that life, come live with us. But they never give him the speech. Instead, he's like, I kidnap your girlfriend. You're going to have to do what we say. Yeah. Well, because isn't that... Like, the, the scene where they show up, it's the scene right after Tyler storms out, right? That they have yeah. the fight, that she finds his badge, and it's like... Okay, now that she knows, now it's okay for everybody to know. Because she's like, you lied to me, I'm getting out of here, and she leaves. And then there's a knock at the door, he's like, Tyler, you came back, and then it's just them. And even though he should realize, like you were saying, that they know, he's like, guys, I don't want to go surfing right now. So like, don't worry, we're not going surfing. I was like, oh, are they going to go rob the bank? Oh, no, they're just going to go skydiving yeah. and then go rob the bank. Yeah, just yeah. go rob the bank immediately. <laughs> I, I guess they do try to set up some tension where they do a little Princess Bride action with the parachutes. Like, who packed my yeah. parachute? Mm-hmm. I'll take your parachute. Oh, no, you take this parachute. But it doesn't. that doesn't work. And I think I'm of the opinion that an action movie doesn't need to be two hours for the most part. Yeah, with that length, fill out the cast a little more. Stunt cast Bodhi's group, you know? Like, let's get it, like a Matt Dillon in there or something to be part of the gang. And that way, even if they don't have a lot of screen time, when they are shot and killed, I'll feel something. Whereas I just kind of, I don't feel anything for those guys that are dead. I feel more for Bodhi because he's lost a friend, you know? But the impact could be stronger. Well, what's kind of interesting, that's not necessarily, it just reminded me what you said is that the people wearing the ex-president's masks are actually shot and killed in the order they were president. I don't know oh, if you realize cool. that. No. And Bodhi is wearing the Reagan mask, and he was the only president to get shot and survive. So it's all... Oh, look at that. There, there's, like a, there's a little bit of a thought process to <laughs> who's wearing what and so on and so that forth. That is like way too much thought put into, but it's very cool. It's cool, though. It is very cool. I mean, it's ultimately really kind of meaningless, but it's also cool. Maybe it's a little bit in poor taste, but I like it. (laughs) What's also really funny in a similar mode or whatever, and I was telling this to Mike last night, is that I was watching with subtitles just because, you know, when I'm rewatching a movie for something like this that I've already seen, I want to make sure I, like, write down the quotes right. And there's the scene where Keanu realizes it's Bodhi's crew or the ex-presidents, right? And yet you don't know definitively really as the audience. Like, there's still, like, a reasonable doubt that that he's not. You know what I mean? Okay. But the subtitles, with him in mask, say Bodhi says, nice. let's get out of here or whatever. And it's just like, oh, I mean, you pretty, you, pretty, you pretty much have to be like dumb or oblivious and not know that, you know, it's Bodhi. But if they, they haven't definitively proven that in the movie, and the subtitles are just like, nah, it's Bodhi. When you know what bugs me about that is like, okay, so he sees the guy pull his pants down on the wave and, mm-hmm. and Bodhi go like, yeah, you're mooning me. And then he's like, oh, it's them. But he never just thought to tail Bodhi one day just for the hell of it because he's in love with him, you know? But, <laughs> oh, he's but that's the time he wants to tail him. But that's the time where he's like, yeah, okay, so like now I've finally followed him. And I thought it was cool because he goes to Tower Records. He goes to Patrick's Roadhouse. Which could be, which is a real restaurant, by the way, but, but also could be a reference to Patrick Swayze's Roadhouse. Yeah, and then he's like, he went and he scouted out a bank. Um, so it's clearly him. But yeah, I'm surprised that they even have time to surf with their busy bank robbing schedule because <laughs> they've robbed 30 banks in three, three years, years, okay? Yep. And in the movie, 
they rob five banks with two of them off screen. So like he comes into work one day and he's like, they've robbed two banks and you've been doing nothing. So that's five. So I wasn't sure were they, here's my question. Why rob 10 banks over the summer while you're surfing to fund your surfing? Why not rob the banks over the winter and then just relax and surf all summer? Well, because they, the whole thing is that they want to surf all year round. Like they go around the world like they're going to Australia, they're going like up the coast and down the coast, okay, so Mexico gonna, and wherever. They because they they love surfing, and so they're just you know they don't they don't actually work. They just rob banks, and so they're just robbing banks wherever they are. I think to fund that lifestyle of right. I don't want to do anything but surf and party and have fire breathers at my parties. <laughs> so I'm going to rob banks no matter where I am, and I'm just going to go around the world and just always be robbing banks. Well, that that leads to my second question: was are they robbing banks around the world, or are they just robbing banks in California? Because it kind of seems like they're just robbing banks in California and then taking the rest of the year off to to surf. So I don't know. It's just something that never bothered me before, and it doesn't really bother me. But I was like, up oh, that to me is kind of confusing. I really also wonder because they're only really robbing Podunk banks. Like they they don't seem to be robbing, and they have like they never have, the they, vault. They have everything down pat. Like they don't go in the vault. They just get the cash up front. They're in and out really quick. But, I mean, how much money do they realistically need to survive? I mean, it's for them, right? They could probably just rent the house on the beach or whatever. You know, they're eating probably on the cheap. So they basically need rent and surf gear and food. And that's pretty much beer. And, like, you know what I mean? Like, it's all... They they don't don't really need that much money and travel, yeah. Okay, so... It's it's funny then. Are they just about getting radical then and for the thrill <laughs> or do they really feel in tune with nature at all? Because it's like Bodhi said earlier, he's like, you know, the red hot chili pepper guys like they're they're mouth breathers. They just live to get radical. They don't they don't know about the soul, the mind, the body, the surf, you know, what it means to be one with the surf. But does Bodhi know what it means to be one with the surf if he's out there getting these like thrill kills out of robbing banks all summer long? Like it makes me wonder about if he knows who he really is. They only live to get radical. They don't have any real understanding of the sea, so they'll never get the spiritual side of it. Hey, you're not going to start chanting or anything, are you? (laughs) I might. This is me. (laughs) So, uh, you still haven't figured out what riding waves is all about, have you? It's a state of mind. It's that place where you lose yourself and you find yourself. You don't know it yet, but you got it. It's right there. I do like that you use the backdoor terminology to get us into our Stranger Things podcast about mouth breathers. That was pretty nice. <laughs> but I, I don't know. I mean, I guess I guess the whole thing about Bodie and his crew is that like nothing else matters except for surfing, and so whatever they have to do to sort of keep that dream alive, right? Yeah, I, I mean, think the whole, the whole point is that he's an adrenaline junkie, and that does include the bank robbing. Hmm. And I think he clearly is the one who's at one with nature. I mean, they, they give him the name. He, he but they don't know he he's also a bank robber. with the surf at the end. And going back to what we're saying about Bodhi not necessarily being the antagonist of this movie, I think you're supposed to be conflicted about who you root for. Yeah. I think you're supposed to want them to just run off together and be surf pals for life. So I think one of the main differences in the new movie, and I might be wrong, this might be just me misreading something, but aren't the people in the new movie just wealthy young kids who are trying to like sort of like mess with society? So I did watch the remake, and what's basically going on is uh, there's a group of adrenaline junkies, quite literally like extreme sports stars, and they're doing this thing called the Ozaki 8, which are eight extreme challenges around the world for you to get in touch with nature, be one with yourself and everything. Yeah, and I was telling you guys, it is sort of like Monster Energy Drink presents Point Break with all of the extremeness going on. And so what these guys do... 
they go around to do these extreme events. So they'll go to a mountain and they'll jump off it, but then they feel like they need to give back to the world. So they'll pull some kind of eco heist, you know, like fight club and they'll liberate a whole bunch of money or they'll release a whole bunch of records online and stuff. Like it's really lame. <laughs> There's it's no really eye bad. roll big enough that I can possibly <laughs> like, Watching the movie, I'm like, this is clearly all of this, all of the illegal stuff is just wedged in there to make it a point break movie. If it was just about these extreme sports people growing close to each other while performing eight extreme stunts around the world, that might have been a movie for itself. Do you feel like it was written as a different movie than they wanted to remake Point Break and they're just like, we could just Mm, adapt this? No, it actually feels like they went to make a Point Break remake and we're like, let's just, let's make it as far from Point Break as possible, but keep these key moments. So you have stuff like him shooting the gun up in the air and going, ah, because he can't <laughs> shoot at his friend, Bodie. And you have everyone with the same name, like okay. Bodie, and he's got a handler named Pappas. And so it's got the same structure, but it easily could have been rewritten one more time to have nothing to do with any Point Break reference whatsoever. Well, because the original Point Break, the one that we're talking about, the one that we're watching right now, is another one of the Keanu movies, and another one that seems to happen a lot, that was based on like a newspaper article or a magazine article. Oh, I'll just say I prefer the unofficial remakes of this movie. Yes. Uh, the Fast and the Death Furious, Furious. Yep. and Brokeback Mountain. <laughs> <laughs> yes. So, the co-producer Rick King first came up with the idea for the movie while lounging on the beach. He began an LA Weekly article about Los Angeles being the robbery capital of America and dreamed up a movie about an FBI agent infiltrating a surf gang that robs banks to fuel their fun. But then another thing that I read said that it was originally about skateboarding and not surfing, so I don't know hmm. what is actually true. Well, that sounds believable. You know, this kind of seems like a movie someone thought up while sitting on the beach relaxing. There's not a whole lot of depth here. I mean, on the surface, it's just pure entertainment. So that seems plausible to me. Which is totally fine. I mean, not every movie has to like be like an important yeah. movie that makes a point. Sometimes you just need dudes surfing and jumping out of planes and robbing banks. I do like that between 1991 and 2011, the robbery capital of the world went from Los Angeles to Boston and then Ben Affleck in the town, like, because that, that, the whole premise of that movie is that, like, there's more robberies per block or whatever in this town than anywhere in the world. And I think they call that, like, the robbery capital of the world. So mm. just wherever you want you to set your movie, that's always the robbery capital of the world. So we've got another unofficial sequel. We've got another unofficial <laughs> also sequel. Also a movie that uses, quote-unquote, iconic masks for their bank scenes. I yeah, right. I definitely remember right. those non-masks. I wonder... and, and while we're on the topic of the mask briefly, this is about the third time that presidential masks have shown up yeah. in Keanu Club. Brotherhood of Justice. Most notably the Brotherhood of Justice. Where they also say, I believe that's the movie where they say Vaya con Dios. They also say Vaya con Dios, yes. It's like an unofficial prequel to this movie. I mean, it's just, it's weird how, like, things are so associated with this movie, but I guess they weren't the first one. I mean, this scene that we're watching now, I mean, this just reminds me of Frankenhooker. You know what I mean? Like, the beginning of Frankenhooker, <laughs> which Garden nobody fight. who's listening to this podcast is going to understand. But when they're fighting outside and there's the lawnmower, the whole premise of Frankenhooker is that this crazy mad scientist builds his girlfriend's dad a self-mowing lawnmower, and it accidentally murders his girlfriend, and so he saves her body parts and needs to rebuild her. But, I mean, Keanu's about to get his face jammed into this lawnmower, and then Gary Busey saves him by shooting it. So, I mean, this is basically Frankenhooker in the first two minutes of Frankenhooker. So this raid is, like, really awesome, too. It's really high adrenaline. Um, There's no music again. Maybe it does amplify the mood to not have the music during these types of action sequences, but they burst in there shooting the hell out of everything 
Busey shoots someone in the head. Anthony Kiedis gets shot in the foot. Yep. Keanu gets his ass kicked by a naked chick in the shower. She, like, jumps yeah. out of the shower and goes Wonder Woman on him. You know, we were talking before about how there's really no women in this movie. There's two women in this scene. One's in underwear and one's completely naked. So, I mean... <laughs> but one is shooting a machine gun and the other one is kicking, kicking Keanu's, Keanu's ass. ass. So, yeah. <laughs> it's almost... It, I don't want to say it evens out, but it gets close. I guess. I don't... I just... But, and then you have... It's Catherine Bigelow directing it. I mean, truly, those women must be stunt women. So, I mean, they must be used to throwing themselves around. Who knows what's going on there? <laughs> I understand that they're, they're kicking ass and they're being sort of badasses, but it just still seems sort of exploitative. I mean, yeah, these are always like, when, when we get into these kind of movies where I'm just like, I feel like I should be offended for the women. Like when we we're talking about Outcast with Holly, we're just like, are the women in this movie, are they role models? Like, are we okay with this? And she's like, yeah, it's fine. Like here, I wonder, like, there's no way that you can really be okay with any of the women in this movie there's no way like for any woman to really identify mm-hmm. like you don't want to be anybody any woman in this movie no. well what guy do you want to be in this movie either Patrick Swayze you, you do okay, well yeah I suppose but no, I'm gonna be Patrick, look, no matter what what about okay look at Tom Sizemore right about now <laughs> I mean I actually think like he's probably in the best position because he was the only one in here like actually doing what he was supposed to like he was undercover for three months they blew his cover I mean again we're dealing with the ultra inept uh, law enforcement agency of fiction films but it's on full tilt here like these guys are all crappy guys too well going back to what we were saying a while earlier about why Keanu's not in jail he gets arrested after the bank robbery goes wrong like the, the undercover cop dies and some bank robbers die and I think like some civilians die and so he gets arrested Gary Busey punches out John C. McGinley and then he drives off Gary Busey then lets him out of handcuffs they go to the airport not only does Gary Busey die, mm-hmm. they kill another bank robber, then Keanu goes on the plane, they skydive out of the plane, then he lets Bodhi go. Yes, yeah, he lets him go. And then he catches up to him again a year later after not being arrested, and then he lets him go again. I don't think he lets him go here. Uh, he blows out his knee again, doesn't he? Oh, yeah, but then, but I mean, he essentially, like, you know, if it was up to Keanu... The whole thing is that, like, he will let Bodhi go to get yeah. Tyler Ann back. Like, even yes. though he doesn't, like, willingly let him go, he, still he would have willingly yeah. let him go. He still doesn't yeah. do his job, right? Like, her being kidnapped is of no consequence to the FBI. It's only him. Like, he's the only one emotionally attached to her. So he could have clearly just brought Bodhi in, but he wanted to get the girl back. But really, why is he emotionally attached to her? Just because she's the only woman in the movie, right? And because... Yeah, pretty much. Well, the movie yeah, at it. that point. Yeah, <laughs> because the movie tells you he is. I think he would have been much happier surfing around the world the endless summer with Bodhi and, you know, starting up a new crew. And subtextually, Bodhi has to always be the one that got away. Like, the love is forbidden. He can (laughs) never actually have him. When he finally does have him handcuffed, and that's when, like, they have this tender moment together, and then other people, the Australian cops or whatever, start rushing the beach, and that's when he says, no, no one else can know about this. This is our love. That handcuff is like, that's like their... That's like them kissing, you know, that's like they're symbolically, they're, they've kissed at that point, and he's got to let it go. If he loves him, he's got to let his love go. And he does. And then, so this is sort of a spoiler for the end of the movie, because the movie ends as Bodhi surfs out, and we don't really know what happens to him. He sort of gets swallowed up by a wave and never comes back. We're like, well, what happened? And apparently I was telling Mike that on the Terminator 2 Judgment Day DVD commentary, James Cameron says, yeah, Bodhi died. At the time, James Cameron was married to Catherine Bigelow, and apparently the two of them shared an unofficial writing credit. They yeah, rewrote okay. the final draft, but because the Writers Guild of America is, like, insane, they just weren't credited as that. So he apparently knew. But there was also talks of a Point Break 2, 
with the same characters. I guess Bodie survived, and then Patrick Swayze died in real life, and they were just like, well, mm. you know. This is a film where the main character kills himself at yeah. the end, and and for a, a a blockbuster action movie, that's that's one of the biggest no-nos, almost that you can do. And interestingly, I I wrote and uh, produced another film in the same year called Point Break, where one of the two main characters kills himself at the end, hmm. and it was also a hit. So it was an interesting revelation that you could get away could, with that. Yeah, that you could get away with that if it was if it was done if it was done in the right way. Yeah, even though I hadn't seen it in a long time, maybe 10 years like you Chris, like a decade. I saw it a lot as a teenager, like in high school. This was a really big movie with me and my friends, especially after Speed came out. We were renting this like crazy just to kind of catch up on Action Keanu. I mean, I had a really good sense of this film, so this time I just kind of tried to let it wash over me and see if I could notice things about it I didn't like or that bothered me, you know, this time, but ultimately I still love the movie. Well, what's great about the movie is that it's sort of like catching up with an old friend. Like, you can just sort of, like, slip into it and just sort of, you know, no matter what you're looking for. Like, a couple of years ago, when I was moving down to Texas for a couple of years, we were having a going-away party, and I'm like, bring a movie, we'll watch it outside. And so I brought this movie. Because if you've seen this movie, you either love it or you like it enough to, like, sort of have to pay attention to it. And if you haven't seen this movie, like, this movie is better to watch, I feel like, with a group of people than by yourself. Because it's crazy to the point where if the people around you are into it, like, it's going to raise you up, sort of. I think it's probably one of the best categories for a movie that I've heard in recent memory is the the Hangover movie. It's like a movie that you put on uh, when you've woken up the day after drinking and you want to die. Like a great movie to just put on and like you can pop in and out of it and you don't have to pick much up if you've fallen asleep for five minutes or you need to bury your head in a pillow. If you catch it on TV, it's it's two hours now, it's probably three and a half if you catch it on TV and that's the perfect <laughs> yeah, amount yeah, of time right. between waking up and being able to put enough water in your body that you can get up and eat some small amount of food it's a great yeah just a, a dead Sunday kind of movie I think mm. but I could also see it does have that cult movie status but I don't know if it really gets the midnight showing it might not have enough there are, quotability I mean, no no it well, absolutely has quotes. enough quotability I think it's just a little too polished compared to other midnight movies and I also think its reputation now is more people like it in the mainstream than sort of underground. I don't know. It, it does have a cult status, but there's almost certain levels of cult status. And I, and I feel like this one, it's not as deeply ingrained in the cult status. Can I say cult status a few more times? Yeah, you, might, <laughs> you, might, you might want to. What that does lead me to say about this movie is it looks beautiful. You know, like oh, yeah. I, I did just see the remake, which was released last year. And this looks so much better just, you know, from a cinematic standpoint, just the shots, the way it's shot, the style, it really holds up. And I almost feel like I'm in a movie theater watching it. It's very cinematic to look at. Well, what's great about this, we talked about her a little bit before, maybe like in a year or so, we're going to talk about her a lot more. But Catherine Bigelow, she knows how to make a movie. And I know that it was sort of controversial and people, not everybody loved it. But when I saw Zero Dark Thirty in theaters a couple years ago, I really could have watched like a nine-hour version of the movie. Like that movie and Spotlight, I think, are the only two where I was just like, I don't want these to end. I guess they're, they're, I mean, they're both based on true stories, but I don't know. There's something about both the way that those movies were made that I was just like, it was like a master class in everything. And I know that that was sort of controversial for a lot of reasons. And, you know, John McCain hated it. And there was this whole like sort of weird boycott of it at the Academy Awards. And like it didn't win anything, even though it maybe could have or should have. But she knows how to make a movie, yeah. and whether it's something that's like more fun like this or really, really serious like that, I mean, she knows what she's doing. This might be a controversial statement, but I think she is the better director of that couple that existed, that mm. directing power couple. Yeah. 
Yeah, because, you know, I feel like James Cameron movies kind of all feel like they're directed by James Cameron, but her movies don't. She's got range of style. You know, she could do, like, Near Dark. I don't know if you've seen Near Dark, but it is just insane, you know? And that is one of the most brutal vampire films I've ever seen. And then she could do stuff like Hurt Locker. These movies look, feel, tonally, everything just very radically different than each other. So, yeah, I do think she's the more talented. She's got the more range. I mean, I couldn't picture her making an avatar. You know what I'm saying? Like, it just doesn't feel like who she is. You know? But is I, she really better when he's got $2 billion movies? I mean, guys, it's all about the financials. Uh, right, more right, money equals yeah. better than Yeah, I forgot. I'm sorry. But, you know, absolutely. I mean, she's more interesting. I mean, nobody nobody really likes Avatar. They're just like, oh, that's good. Yeah. That's visually yeah. spectacular. Mm-hmm. I mean, yeah. you're also talking to somebody who owns it I've owned two versions of the Blu-ray have neither never opened either it's just like I was like this is a movie that I want to own but I like, never actually want to rewatch. there's just something kind of schmaltzy about Avatar I don't know it's just like it, it just feels hokey to me to a degree and that movie just hits you over the head with messages and stuff I just don't feel like she needs to go that far to prove her point she can do it with practical effects yeah every James Cameron movie just kind of looks maybe Titanic is the exception maybe but I'm, I'm picturing the end, and it does kind of have the same problem, where every James Cameron movie is kind of like in this hazy shade of blue throughout mm-hmm. the entire movie, mm-hmm. and it's not that visually incredible to look at. I mean, Terminator 2 or Aliens, they're technically, the things that they do within the movie with effects and things like that are incredible, but from a directing standpoint, eh. You know, I think she has, yeah, like you said, more range. There's more diverse stuff there. I think she gets more out of her actors. Catherine Bigelow was born in 51, so she was 40. Okay, so she's not... Oh, she's older than I thought she was. She's 64. Not that that really makes a difference at all. Because this almost feels like the type of movie that like a young person would have made. Yeah. Mm. And yes. I mean, not that 40 is old by any stretch of the imagination. Sorry, Mike, almost there. <laughs> uh, but, you know, it just feels like a movie that some 25-year-old would have been like, I have a great idea for a movie. I feel like mm. if this movie was made today, and not remade, but made for the first time today, yes. it would have been, basically, would have been somebody who grew up on movies like this, who finally came of age and like made a movie like this. Like, it's, it's almost weird to me that someone who was 40 made this movie. I don't know. Yeah. There's a certain thing about the energy of this movie that like mm-hmm. feels like it's a young person's movie. I think some of that might come from the year, it being 1991. I think the, there's something about, she captured like something about the moment, the zeitgeist, if you will. Like action movies especially just had this Hollywood gloss, like everything popped and had energy to it. Other action films around this time, they almost all feel like part of a cinematic family to a degree, if that makes sense. You know, they all have this spirit behind them that she's able to tap into that. Do you want to talk about the action scenes a little bit more? I feel like we've glossed over them slightly. Yeah. Which one do you want to talk about first? Want to start with the foot chase? So what'd you say? What'd you call it, Mike, last night? You called it like the, the, a serious, like an intense version of the Raising Arizona chase? Yes. This starts actually in the cars, right? They start at the yeah. car chase, and it becomes a foot chase. So there's like multiple levels to it. I'm shocked that the scene where Ronald Reagan is holding a gas station pump that is on fire is not more of an iconic shot because Seriously. that is an amazing moment that I completely forgot happened. <laughs> it's just hypnotizing to look at. There's something about a man in a mask holding a flamethrower made out of a gas pump that <laughs> just it just mesmerized. Like it feels like that shot could have been what inspired the purge. Like somebody was just like, I'm gonna make three <laughs> movies about this one image. Because, I mean, another tangent, but, like, the Purge movies keep getting better. Like, not that they're necessarily good yet, but I really do think that Election Year is a good movie on some level. But I don't know another franchise 
that keeps getting better. Because the first Purge was like, all right. And then the second one was sort of more what I wanted. And the third one's like legitimately interesting and like good and well-made. It's sort of exactly what you want the Purge movie to be. That iconic image from this movie of Reagan holding the flamethrower is great, but it's sort of almost overshadowed by just like two minutes later, Keanu pointing the gun at Bodhi, still in the mask, unable to shoot, and then just like, sort of like a whole movie of like male impotence, sort of, right? Yeah. It's just about how he just can't get it up for his partner, I guess, and then just rolls on his back and just shoots, you know, just like Nick Frost did in Hot Fuzz. You know, another show that's on right now that'll be off by the time this episode comes out, but Vice Principals is the same thing. It's just like, you know, sort of like in a weird way, this bromance, it's like these guys who are just like filled with rage, like they're not getting things in their life and just these examinations of manliness, like I think masculinity, it's more poignant coming from someone like Catherine Bigelow because like she's sort of one step removed and she can like, she can do it in a way that is fair and objective and not really mean. I mean, you could, because you could go way overboard and make them both, like, super sappy and dumb, but they feel real in a way that makes them interesting and sort of compelling as characters. Yeah, I think possibly, possibly, is her being a female, she doesn't have to get embarrassed as a male director directing them in terms of no you guys are actually in love with each other i almost feel like her being a woman she can detach herself so she can convey what she needs to without being embarrassed and maybe get the actors to go certain places to trust her i almost feel like Catherine bigelow may have been able to use her sexuality in a way to direct them right her view her view of it her yeah. yeah this movie isn't as good if there's a male director i don't think I think it would be way too serious. I think we would lose that sense that, is it a parody? Partially. But it's poking fun at itself, but it knows what it is. And it would go into full-on, it doesn't even realize it's a joke kind of territory. Kind of like what the the new version almost feels like. There is no levity in that remake whatsoever. Like, they are dead serious mm. about what they are. They are tatted up, and they are going global. That's and, so sad. Yeah. And they the don't know. between, like, what Predator 1 and Predator 2 is doing. Predator 1 is a commentary on, you know, these hyper-masculine movies. You got a bunch of future governors, but a bunch of also, like, <laughs> yeah, uh, hyper, hyper-jacked-up muscle men carrying these giant phallic objects while a, a vagina on legs is picking them off one by one and showing mm-hmm. how futile all of that is. Mm-hmm. And then Predator 2 is a monster movie. Um, yeah, and the I, urban jungle. I think jungle. we would get the difference there if we had a male-directed uh, point break, where it's just, it's missing the stuff that makes it interesting, whether your brain is realizing it or not. I just like that. Yeah, check out this group of future governors over here. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> got a real bunch of future governors. So we got, you got future governors over here, you got ex-presidents over here, <laughs> they all lump back in together. It's all about government, past, present, future. It's synergy. I don't know what else to say. I mean, it's just a perfect analogy to make for point break. And then you got Gary Busey in Predator 2 and in Point Break, and uh, it's all coming together now. Speaking about other movies of the era, this is sort of a platoon reunion, or I guess like a pre-union. Pre-union, McGinley Dr. is in Cox there. And Pre-union's got to be a word that people have said before, because pre-union's a great word, and I just came I up think with you just top coined my head. pre-union. That's pretty great, because this film and platoon both feature Chris Peterson and John C. McGinley. Keanu Reeves auditioned for the role, a role in platoon, and Charlie Sheen, Johnny Depp, and Willem Dafoe all were contenders for the role of Johnny Utah. So like, there's a whole oh, Willem Dafoe. Oh no, it's not a pre-union because Platoon came out five years before. I still coined. Yeah, I still coined. I still coined pre-union, but it's uh, still you know the timeline's wrong. Willem Dafoe as as Johnny Utah. I mean maybe as Bodie. Maybe. No, as I think Bobby I, I, Peru. 
Yeah. <laughs> well, I think he plays um plays Oh, uh, Pappas? Maybe he was a yeah. Pappas? He's basically playing that in the atrocious movie Boondock Saints. Okay. So, Matthew Broderick was originally offered mm. the role of Johnny Utah. Offered offered the offered. role. That's what the, that's, yeah, that's what the internet says. Whoa. Where but he hadn't really done that. anything after Ferris Bueller. But Let's I feel like that's, what you, that's what you need. You sort of need like a clean-cut guy who you don't expect hmm. to be like an action star kind of. Maybe. Depp would have been good. Yeah, Depp a little Depp. too old here. Depp in like his Jump Street days is, or maybe like his. Well, no, this is probably perfect for Depp. I could also see. I could see him in either role, Bodie or Johnny. Yeah. Val Kilmer and Willem Dafoe turned down the role, and like we said before, Swayze originally auditioned for the Utah role. Interestingly enough, we talk about a lot about Catherine Bigelow. Ridley Scott was the first choice to direct this movie. Whoa. Mm. I could see Tony Scott directing this. Like, this almost feels like it's shot down the street from True Romance in a lot of ways. You know, like, it's definitely got that L.A. vibe going on. Yeah. Yeah. Was there any information in the trivia about why they picked the president masks they did? Reagan makes a lot of sense. I would say Nixon is hilarious, but Carter and LBJ are weird to me. It just says, I think what I said before, the members of the ex-presidents are killed in chronological order of when their respective presidents served in office. Mm. I didn't see anything in that regard. So they just worked their way back from Reagan to the previous four presidents, maybe? No, because Ford is missing. Oh, because so. oh, sorry, I keep. I nah. guess it's just people like who. who I know, forgot about Ford. They forgot about Ford. <laughs> forgot about Ford. <laughs> I guess it's just sort of like famous. I mean, like everybody knows Nixon, everybody knows Reagan. I, I don't yeah. know. It's just Jimmy you know, Carter just with the teeth. Ones, you know. Yeah. Yeah, LBJ does seem out of place. But then again, maybe they're trying to say something about Kennedy. I don't know. Who knows? Kennedy would have been a. Well, hmm. Well, you couldn't Kennedy but, in a movie but they, maybe they're yeah, like, maybe we wanted right. to use Kennedy, so let's use yeah. LBJ. I don't know. Yeah, it's just an interesting, I mean, not even a Lincoln or a Washington or something like that. They could have, I don't know, it's just interesting decisions, and I'm curious what you know, the these, process You know, these was. presidents were still sort of, well, at least Carter and Reagan t- and Nixon, I mean, they were still sort of in the public spotlight, you know? Sure, and this the, could very easily this, be a commentary on Reaganomics. Yeah. Someone smarter I, than me would could come up with that very easily, <laughs> I'm sure. I remember my brother sending books to Nixon to get autographed around this time. Too. Really? <laughs> so yeah, he's a huge Nixon fan. This bank heist scene is fantastic, where it turns into just a a shootout. I think it's my favorite bank heist scene. That's not heat. Great squibs in this movie. Great use of slow mo. They really only use the slow motion twice when they're surfing up close or when someone's getting shot. I think the schlubby security guard who looks like the schlubby guy from The Office yep. looks exactly like that guy. Yeah. I think he's the most sympathetic character in this movie. Poor guy, <laughs> just doesn't want to be a hero at all. I really wonder, like this scene, I know that things in this scene are heightened because they bring in Keanu who's not wearing a mask and like this is sort of their last job and whatever, but the way that this job goes down makes me really amazed that they're able to rob 30 banks in three years mm. because so many things go wrong in this heist. Nobody move! Heads down, eyes down. Good afternoon, ladies and gentlemen. May I have your attention, please? We are the ex-presidents. And as you can see, we are in fact robbing your bank. So with a little cooperation, I won't have to blow your heads off. So I need just a couple of minutes of your lives and we're gone. Dick, Dick, go to the vault. Uh, you, Miss Jennings. Would you be a dear and open the gate for my associate now? Mr. Duggan's got the keys. Why are we going to the vault? We never go to the vault. Just do it! Lyndon, go with them. We're hitting the vault, man. Go, go! Put your hand on the ground. Don't look at me! You're blowing it, man! You're breaking your own rules. You're pulling too much time. Jimmy, how are we doing? 65, what's happening? Don't worry, man. It's fine. It's fine. It's great. Fuck! Fuck! Well, they get 
greedy. They get greedy, but it's also it's not just it's, that. I mean, it's it's like bravado, right? Because yeah. that also means that in the thirty previous heists or whatever, there was never an undercover cop. There was never a security guard who tried to get brave. Like if there's anybody in any of those heists that like takes a shot at anybody, it's gonna slow you down at the very least. You know what I mean? Yeah. So they basically had thirty perfect heists in a row, and then they're like, "All right, Keanu, you're gonna come with us. You're gonna not have a mask." A great argument against the old talking point that it only takes a good guy with a gun to stop the bad guy with a gun. <laughs> yeah, I think there's a lot going on here. I mean, everyone's starting to fall apart. Bodie has, you know, his entire world was turned upside down. You know, both of theirs were because they found out their best friend's their worst enemy now. And and so I think Bodie's losing control. He's losing his grip. I think he's also trying to show off in front of Keanu and be like, I'm the dangerous bad boy. Like, I'm even worse than you imagine. You want me even more now I, I do think that there's some peacocking going on here at the expense of his own crew and uh, the guy gets killed in the scene like so he bleeds out in Swayze's arms Swayze I don't know if this is just like a oh bra kind of like surfer thing but he calls him little brother as he's dying huh. do we ever get an inkling before that 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 is his brother well no because I mean like we were talking about earlier we don't know anything about these other surfers Bodhi can't rob banks by himself you know what I mean like right. they're just there just because he basically needs warm bodies to be with him I, I don't yeah. know if that was supposed to be a revelation or he's just saying it like oh brother you know but it's strange that in this two-hour, five-minute movie, we don't get just one or two little scenes to explore the sidelines a little deeper. You know, I'm not saying we got to have scenes with everyone in Bodhi's crew, but it would be nice if we did get, you know, maybe one intimate moment between them without Keanu, just so we could get a sense of how they operate when he's not around. You know, how just their camaraderie without him, in a sense, just so we could get a better understanding of how close-knit they are. Yeah, I think that is something that's missing a little bit. Keanu is the cipher that we're watching this movie through, right? Because there aren't really many scenes where he's, he's not, not in it, in it or yeah. like there's not like a, it's not centered on the cops, which he would always ha- also have access to, right? So it's almost like they're intentionally like, let's not draw back the curtain unless Keanu's invited behind the curtain. Yeah, but I think we even could have gotten that at some point with Keanu there. Once he's more accepted into the club, I mean, I called that that terrible party scene before, like the Lost Boys. The Lost Boys is actually a movie that does that. It, mm. it does tell you a little, not much, but you get a little bit more about the non-Kiefer Sutherland ones. You know, also Alex Winters in that movie. And we also, I don't think we mentioned actually on Mike, but this is the second time Swayze's been in a Keanu movie. He was in Young Blood, which I said I could have watched a hundred hockey movies starring Patrick Swayze. It's just so good. I mean, Patrick I Swayze existed. Patrick oh, Swayze great. is amazing. Yeah. I mean, it's just the other sort of interesting thing in terms of the way that everything is connected is that in real life, Keanu was an aspiring hockey player who hurt his knee and then became an actor. He's playing Johnny Utah, who was an aspiring football player who hurt his knee and became a cop. So they're both former athletes that suffered knee injuries and sort of had to have a career change. There's so many ways you can go with this movie because this movie is such sort of a cultural landmark and a lot of different things. But it is weird, and I don't think it's like weird in like a making stretches kind of way, but weird in like a, oh, everything really is kind of connected way, that there are so many different sort of parallels and you know similarities to draw. I mean, as good as Swayze and, and Keanu are in this movie, I really love Gary Busey in this movie. I think him and his teeth steal this movie. I don't know if it's just because you don't get to see him as a good guy ever, and I was maybe surprised how good he was in that role, as hmm. opposed to just like a, a scene-chewing villain. Yeah, that is interesting. He's not hiding behind any walls in this movie, trying to creep anybody out. He is actually playing the most morally straight guy in the film in a lot of ways. Like, it just seems like he's the best cop. Maybe not physically, but just the way in which he thinks, you know? Okay, so here's what's hilarious about him, though, is, like, he came up with the theory about them being surfers, like, last summer. Yeah. 
And nobody in the Bureau has even given it, like, a second thought. Like, he's just written off to be over the hill, a complete joke, just a waste, basically waiting for his pension to kick in. Which really makes you wonder, because, like, Keanu, to some extent, plays the same role the cops the previous summer did, right? Where, they're, where he's just like, oh, yeah, wax, but wax can be used for, like, a hundred things. But, like, it seems that every objection Keanu has, Gary Busey has the answer for. Right. Like, the only explanation that sort of makes sense is that he's such a pariah that he's, like, been there for so long and just nobody takes him seriously. And I think you also see that with these other cops that sort of, you know, do the, the night shift to their day shift, that they just don't want to have anything to do with him that the only partner that Gary Busey could ever have is this new upstart guy, young, dumb, and full of cum, because everybody else, like, once you get to know Gary Busey for a while, or just, you know, it, it seems like he's mm-hmm. the kind of guy who, you're going to go on, like, too many wild goose chases. Yeah. It just so happened that, like, this wild goose chase actually was right. I really, I just love the relationship between it, even though there's there's a good amount of it. There, between Busey and Keanu, we, we were joking off mic that he's, like, the drunken Obi-Wan Kenobi of this movie. <laughs> yeah. And I'm surprised how much pathos there is for the audience to feel when Busey gets murked. Well, because like there are scenes, like, one of my favorite scenes in the movie is that it, we just cut to the car, and he's just laughing maniacally. He's like, that is a funny Calvin and Hobbes. And then he goes, and, like, this is right before the huge chase scene, and he's just like, oh, yeah, it's 10.30 in the morning, go get me two meatball sandwiches. <laughs> <laughs> this Calvin and Hobbes is funny. Oranges, sir. Take some oranges. You want some oranges? Dollar, no. No, no, we got a lot. We got a lot. Dollar, sir. No, thanks. Good luck. God. It's time for lunch. Angelo, it's 10.30. Right around that corner, there is a sandwich shop. They sell meatball sandwiches. Best I've ever tasted. Would you go get me two? Come on, partner. Two. Thank you. Utah, give me two. Which, aside from the fact that, like, that's just great, and, you know, that's really, like, that's, you know exactly who he is in that moment. I like that Keanu orders food and, like, within 35 seconds has his entire order. Like, that is the best service. He gets, like, three sandwiches, two lemonades for, like, seven bucks. It's like, this is, I want to live in L.A. in 91. Well, it's Aside from all the terrible things about living in L.A. in 91. (laughs) But also, I don't know if I want to be eating, like, any kind of tuna sandwiches that are just already made and just, like, waiting to be purchased. You know what I mean? Like, it seems a little fishy. Imagine all the tuna salad that gets stuck in those teeth. Ugh. Yeah, they, they really do have good chemistry, though. You know, maybe, I don't want to say they have, oh, I mean, it's a different relationship, but they have as good a chemistry as he has with Patrick Swayze. I feel like all of that is really clicking, and maybe that's like 90% of it is just like the right casting to a degree, because Busey never comes across as a father figure or anything like that. He's like, seriously, just like a friend to this kid, you know? And, and almost at first, I almost feel like Keanu is just so gullible and naive and just so green as an FBI agent that Pappas maybe he's like I can you know kind of like mold him in my mold own mold him or like coax him into this wild like I could convince him that this is a good lead to do because he's kind of this naive little punk well I feel like this is a really tough precinct or whatever to work in because really from the get-go John C. McGinley is already all over Keanu that I think like, everybody hates everybody. I think that's another, I think we might have talked about this earlier, but like there's another yeah. commentary on masculinity that like everybody's so set in their ways that nobody's willing to give anybody the time of day. But what's cool about the movie is that the first interaction that Gary Busey and Keanu have, Gary Busey's shit talking him. He's just like, I can't believe I got stuck with some young upstart. And Keanu's like, I know, like you believe the things that people do. And then he's like, we'll meet your new partner. Added to which indignity, I have been saddled with some blue flamer Quantico cat. Some quarterback punk. 
Johnny Unitas or something. The shit they pull, huh? Yeah. Hey, Angie. What? Here's your guy. What? <sighs> Pappas. Angelo Pappas. Punk. Quarterback punk. Hmm. Like they get along, I think, just because they see the world the same way. That they know that there's outrage to be had or whatever, and the, but there's also ultimately sort of nothing you can do about it. It makes me a little bit sad that Gary Busey got typecast into Crazy Wild Man because hmm. this is post accident, and like everyone kind of assumes that his brain got splattered on on a highway, and then he became this this wacky crazy man. But he's playing this completely straight, and he's great at it. I think it's probably. I mean. I'm trying to think of, like, Busey roles in the last couple of years, but I think this is my favorite other than Buddy Holly. Oh, yeah. That is a shockingly good performance. But this almost makes me wonder if he had more accidents, like, down the line, (laughs) because, like, he is so present here. Yeah, he does kind of steal the movie in a way. Just one more last thing about the dynamic of their relationship that I just thought of is like, maybe I was just thinking like, he kind of seems like the oldest and Keanu's the youngest. Maybe I was thinking that's why they work so well together is because he's old and doesn't really give a shit anymore and he's willing to put his neck out on the line and Keanu is just young and rambunctious and kind of looks before he leaps and doesn't really understand how to navigate the bureau yet. So it's kind of like serendipity I think they are like the perfect partners for each other. I think it's kind of a win-win here for Keanu because like if Busey is right, they crack this bank robbing ring, right? But if Gary Busey's wrong, he just sort of like was stuck with this new partner. You know what I mean? Like there's Mm -hmm. nothing, he doesn't have anything to lose because like, oh, like, you know, Pappas is, he's always crazy. Like we didn't expect you to actually solve that one anyway. So, I mean, it's great for the young upstart. And then Gary Busey finally gets somebody who's willing to listen to him and like go along with him and help him. You said you had some information about how they shot the skydiving sequences because we are we are currently seeing Keanu has just grabbed his phallic weapon and shot out of the plane without a parachute so that he can have his symbolic sex scene with Patrick Swayze in the air. A little mid-air coitus here. Yep. Yes. Because that you can kind of see there's something under his shirt when he when he jumps on him, but it's still I'm sure like in standard def you can't like it, it looks yeah. incredible for 199 and like you can kind of tell they're connected there like if you really think about it, but it's so. Good and mm. it's so well shot and crafted that it doesn't take you out of the movie when you're not watching it to analyze it <laughs> to say like oh, well, well it's clearly how they did this is this is blah 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 like it's it so works in yeah. the moment yeah it's seamless you really can't tell how they did it uh, it almost reminds me of old James Bond stunts you know yeah. it's like legit they're just doing it for real practically so there's the one jump that Patrick Swayze actually does which is this final jump where he's talking to Keanu and then the camera it's a, a shot that doesn't break he skydives out of the plane that's the only one that they actually did for real but to get close-ups of the actors while skydiving which is most of this scene and a couple of other times in the movie they built a crane rig with a telescoping arm for each actor which enabled the cast to save their lines while the camera shot them from below to achieve the sense of floating while skydiving but I mean, however they do it, it's, it's awesome. Like, it's great, and it works really, really well. What I also read was that apparently Mythbusters, which I never watched, but they tried to figure out if they could actually do this. They tried to debunk three different things. If you could catch up to him? If you could catch up to him, if they could have a conversation while falling, and something about, I think... The tandem... More like about like how late they pull the parachute. Okay, yeah, it's like right before they hit the ground. And I mean, this is something that we don't want to overanalyze the movie. What they found out was that they pulled the parachute way, way, way too late. Like they would never have survived. Number two, they could not have maintained the conversation. Like it's just way too loud. But they did say that it was possible that if Keanu sort of streamlined his body, because I mean, Bodhi is just doing the the skydiving jump 
normally, like he's just sort of enjoying it. And they said that theoretically, if you sort of like streamline and just sort of go down like a bullet, you could conceivably catch up to him. So the scene's not entirely implausible. It's just mostly implausible. We're not trying to cinema sins this movie. No. No fucking thanks. But that is interesting. Yeah, I think it's a testament to this film and the technical achievement that it is. Yeah, so, uh, you know, it might might have been a good episode of Mythbusters. Yeah. (laughs) Speaking of CinemaSins, before we get off there... It's trash. Second fate masquerading as film criticism. Have you seen the CinemaSins version of a CinemaSins? Like, somebody else did a CinemaSins about CinemaSins? The guy's my hero. About Sherlock Holmes? Mm Mm-hmm. And they're like, but none, because he's just like, where'd this guy come from? He's like, well, if you're paying attention two minutes ago, you would have seen him come on screen. Because all of CinemaSins is just like, I can't believe that none of this makes any sense. And it's just like, well, if you're actually paying attention to the movie, everything's actually set up pretty well. If you have a bad movie, sure, that's one thing. But you have a movie like Sherlock Holmes that is not necessarily my favorite movie, but like is well made and well acted and, you know, it tells like a story that makes sense. You don't have to be like a rocket scientist to figure out what's going on, so... Down with cinema sins. 97 things wrong with the Dark Knight. How about go fuck yourself? <laughs> Guy who has way more internet success and probably Patreon bucks coming in than I ever will. Yeah, but whatever. I mean... Hey, we said more money equals better then, all right? More money That's equals right, better. Yeah. yeah. What's kind of annoying a little bit in terms of the sexism of the movie is that at the end here, after they crash dive and, you know, Johnny Utah blows out his knee again and Bodhi gets away... Tyler Ann comes back and she's just in a nightlish. Like, it's just, yeah, it's just yeah. like, oh, okay. I don't know why. Like, I understand well, that she was, she was kidnapped. She was kidnapped, yeah. leaving his house. Was she though? No, we don't probably, know for sure. Probably. He sends that one guy after him, right? What's his name? I Rosie. Know, something like that. They yeah. got this one guy in their crew, Rosie, who looks kind of like a metalhead and seems to be doing their. He's always lighting the bonfire on the beach and. Bodhi basically is like, once I set that guy in motion, nothing stops him unless he gets the call. So we see this video that the guy took for proof that she's kidnapped. And yes, she's in a nightie. Yes, she is the damsel in distress. But what I love about it is she's like, fuck you guys. Like, you guys are at, like, I'm going to fucking kill you guys. You know, it's like, yes, she looks bad, but at least like her character is fighting back the way she can. It's also important because she is throwing herself at Johnny Utah, which, Mm. God, can we just talk about how dumb that name is? Uh, (laughs) While she is in, uh, yeah, basically lingerie. And she starts to say, Johnny, I I love you. And he's just like, no, no, no. (laughs) I need to watch, I need to watch Bodie drive away (laughs) for the last time. But why does she love him? Because the last time we saw her, she had a gun on him, Goodfellas style, and was like, you lied to me. You lied to me. Yeah, you work for the FBI. I'm out of here forever. Is it just because she was kidnapped by Bodie? Now she's in love with Keanu. It's like he didn't even really rescue her. She was just kind of released. Well, as when we know, Bodhi in this away. in this world, there are four people, and everybody else is a caricature. There's Gary Busey, who's now dead. There's Tyler, and she can't be in love with herself. And then there's two dudes. So one just did yes. a bad thing to her. So she has to be in love with the other one. Like there's nobody else. Everybody else is just sort of like a two dimensional yeah. cardboard cutout. I mean, I think it's like, it's it. commentary on. I mean, think about like speed. Keanu, why do Keanu and Sandra get together? Oh, right, because they, they were stuck mm-hmm. on a yeah. They on went through like an intense, rela- yeah, experience together. Uh, and it's funny too, because the joke about that is like, you know, how how many times does a relationship built off of one shared experience actually last? And he never returned for the sequel. So. Well, I think they actually make a joke about that in why mm-hmm. they're not together in the masterpiece Speed Two. She Cruise says, like, control. How is that ever going to work? We met on an exploding bus, and like, I think you know they use this in this in Point Break as kind of a commentary on that, and also uh, you know in the subtextual. And she's not here at the end. She didn't go with Keanu no. to 
rescue Bodie at the which, end. It's, which it's leads me to be believe done. that they broke up, that they're mm-hmm. not together. I almost believe that too. <laughs> I almost think that night was just like really great. We're still alive sex. And then after that, sort of everything sank in and she was like, yeah, you're terrible. Like you lied to me about your parents. I didn't see it. But during that one time when you were on a raid, you kicked a dog. <laughs> the audience saw it. <laughs> I like to imagine that every action movie has like the male and female leads driving back to the hospital at the very end and they just have a graduate moment. What I do really like about this final scene cinematically, if I, aside from it being just awesome and badass in the rain, is that the movie started in the rain and ends in the rain. Yes. Mm. And so he starts off with Johnny, basically with Keanu in his John Wick training, just yeah. badass real Monaco life, that, that viral style. video from a couple of months ago about, yeah. you know, where he's just like a master with a gun, master marksman. He's doing that at Quantico. And so it's just sort of, it doesn't, like, there's no stakes. And then here, it's really the highest stakes of all time. Except, you know, the high stakes are just like, all, you could also be like, nah, I'll just, just let you go. The first time they interact also is a tussle on the shore as the waves are crashing over them as well during the football game. That's right, that's right. Yeah, and in that opening, it, it actually cross-cuts between Keanu shooting in the rain with Patrick Swayze surfing in the sun. Yeah. You know, it's almost like those two scenes are molded together here at the end where we get them both in the rain with guns and surfboards, and it's all come together. We talked about it so many times for Cage Club, how important the beach was. We've seen the beach in a couple of Keanu movies, too. I mean, mostly because all of his movies are him in high school in California. What else are you going to do besides from go to the beach? But the beach, in terms of overall literature and storytelling, it's a transformative place. Here, it's, it's an important moment. I mean, the whole movie basically takes place on the beach, but it's, for a lot of different reasons, the most important setting of the movie. I love how pissed Swayze gets when he finds out he's handcuffed and he can't go. He thinks he can't go die in, a sur- in the surf. His delivery on, like, you know, I'll never survive in a box or whatever like that. This whole last scene is, is uh, it's pretty solid. You know, there's no way I can handle a cage, man. I don't care. You gotta go down. It's gotta be that way. <laughs> okay, man. Okay. I'm screwed. I'm going to go to jail, and I'll pay, and Johnny Utah gets this guy, right? Good for you. That's real good. You're going to be a big hero now. But look at it, Johnny. Look at it! This is a once-in-a-lifetime opportunity, man. Just let me go out there. Let me get one wave before you take me. One wave. I mean, where am I going to go, man? Cliffs on both sides. I'm not going to paddle to New Zealand. My whole life has been about this moment, Johnny. Come on, compadre. Come on. Come on! Vaya con Dios. Yeah, it really works. I'm really glad that we get this little coda here. I mean, of course, they're not going to let him get away in the end. We're not going to end it with the last scene, but you don't know if maybe they ended, if, like, they could have ended it with Keanu being reassigned or being sent to jail. But, uh, I do, I just, there's just something about this little coda here that wraps everything up so perfectly. I just feel like it's really earned. So really, what do you think happens when this movie ends? He goes back to California, he goes to John C. McGinley, because assume, um, although maybe he's not working with John C. McGinley anymore, who knows? Well, he is in the FBI at this moment, before he throws the badge away. 
right? He's got the badge. Right. But he, he, he also, away. like, John C. McGinley have been like, I don't want him in my precinct or whatever. Well, okay, here's a question. Is this even sanctioned? Like, that's what I'm... <laughs> that's my biggest question, is what's he even doing in Australia to begin with? So, like, what happens after this movie ends? Does he go back to America? I don't think so. I, I think that he goes to maybe surf the world, the endless summer for himself. You know, uh, that bullshit that he told Taylor before, right? Where he's like, when my parents died, I, I did everything for them. But now I'm going to try and surf for me. I feel like he's been trying to catch Bodie for them, whoever, the FBI, his job. And now that this chapter's done, he's about to go actually surf and for him finally and go find himself. Oh, that. That's the best. I think he changes his last name from Utah to Wick. Uh, <laughs> Johnny Wick. And applies his skills elsewhere until he decides to settle down. All He's right. got the aim. Even Pappas is like, you don't miss your crack shot, kid. How'd you let him get away? I had to shoot my gun up in the air and say, ah. All right. <laughs> That's such a parodied scene, is shooting the gun up in the air. I mean, even before Hot Fuzz exactly, was yeah. literally like, do you ever see Point Break? Because later in the movie, I'm going to shoot my gun in the air because I can't shoot someone I love. But yeah, I think it became one of those things that popped up throughout action movies. Sure. You know, like the, uh, I've, got, I've got him in my sights and I just can't bring myself to do it. Was this the first movie to do that? It's the first one to do it that way, at least. Yeah, I think it's the first one to make it stand out. It took a sequence that has been done a thousand times, but because of the relationship of the two characters, there's this deeper meaning and the extra context to it. I think that's why it's sort of seen as one of those iconic moments in film, because it's a moment you get in a lot of movies just with a twist. It's also something, as much as I love Hot Fuzz, that's something that never really landed with me, with like the fact that, oh yeah, these two... These two cops have a, a bromance. We're making it very obvious that this is a bromance because all these old action movies secretly had bromances. Like, no, it didn't. Mm. This movie straight up had one. Yeah. You're not parroting it. You're just doing the same thing again. You're kind right. of explaining the joke. As much as I love that movie, that never landed with me very well. Is there anything else about Point Break that we want to talk about? We didn't really go through this movie in order. There's probably a lot of things in my notes, but I feel like we've covered it well enough. If anyone has seen the Point Break Live I have not. Out there in the Cage Club world. I think oh. right in, because I'm curious to know I feel if like, they treat it with reverence or complete hipster irony. I feel or like the, 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 the problem with... from I haven't seen it, but the problem with me, what I've heard about it, is that that's treated the same way that a lot of Cage is treated on the internet. And so it's done in a way that's just almost purely mocking as opposed to actually giving him a chance. Because the whole mm. thing is like, the point of... Point Break Live is that they have somebody from the audience be Keanu and they read all the lines off the cue cards because they want like that wooden delivery or whatever. Mm. But I really do think that Keanu's great in this movie. Like this movie could not be made like just the same way that Matrix like was almost a Johnny Depp. Like the Matrix wouldn't work with anybody other than Keanu Reeves. I don't think. I always felt like Keanu got too much of a bad rap for being mm. a ditz. I guess that surfer voice. When people do the, I know Kung Fu, he, he doesn't really sound like an he, idiot. He just says like, I know that. Kung Fu, and then yeah, 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 he says, Show me. Not that he can't play that role, he clearly does it in Bill and Ted, he does it in, I don't know if you guys have done much to do about nothing, so he plays kind of that role in that, like, he can do it well, but that's not everything he is. No, it's not, and that's what, the whole point, I think, the reason we did Cage Club, and the reason that I think we picked Keanu Club is because they're both actors, I think Cage is more so, in, in all respects, but they're both actors with more range than people give them credit for, that are pigeonholed as a single thing that everybody knows Cage as the guy from The Wicker Man. Mm -hmm. Everybody knows Keanu as, like, this dumb sort of surfer bro dummy. And they're just, there's so much more than that. I think that through 25 movies, 
Cage has shown a way more diverse range than Keanu has. Maybe that's because his last name is originally Coppola. Like, who, who knows why? Or maybe it was just better luck. Or maybe because he got a leading role earlier than Keanu, he was able to sort of branch out from there. But time has shown, like, the further we get into Keanu Club, the more that we'll see it. There's way more to these guys than people give them credit for. And it's frustrating that they're so looked at as these one-note guys. I didn't know what to expect coming into it. I'd been so far removed. It is kind of revered as this almost cult movie. Uh, I think there's more to it than that. I think the first 20 minutes are slow. They don't work for me. The movie really picks up probably, yeah, maybe after or at the gunfight where they murder the Red Hot Chili Peppers. That's about the halfway point when he finds out he's been tailing the wrong guys and he's got to reevaluate. It's an hour and one minute into the two hour and one minute movie that he realizes it's Bodhi. So the second half is pretty much just nonstop. Because really, I mean, within the movie, like the movie's time is running out, but also summer is running out. They they know that they (laughs) have like a set time window as opposed to... Did you get a sense of how long this movie took place over? I mean, it's long enough for him to learn how to surf. I did not get the sense that it was like three months, you know, but it it clearly was. It's been a long summer for the FBI (laughs) chasing these guys around. They've robbed four banks because the one Keanu goes in on that's the fifth robbery they've done since he's been put on the case so it's got to be a while it's got to be a while yeah probably over the course of a summer I would imagine probably 10 weeks okay it felt like it felt like a couple days to me (laughs) that's just movie timing which makes me wonder when he went to Australia since the seasons are reversed I think when they're talking because they're taught they're sort of like having that like macho conversation like what's the biggest wave you ever surfed and then Patrick Swayze says the the 50 year he's like there's no way that's bigger than Waimea he's like next year it's going to be so I think that's whenever it is whether it's 6 months or 12 months or 18 months it's the following year because I think what's weird about the timeline in this movie is that they don't show time going by like everything yeah. that they show could have happened like in a single weekend yes yeah and that's all I meant is like if this movie has any faults with the directing for me with Bigelow and the way she's telling this story I don't have a great sense of time yeah. I've got a great sense of geography and direction and all that but I don't have a good sense of when things are happening it's like a Groundhog's Day thing where you find out that he was supposed to be in that nightmare for like 25 years of time. Now we've just learned that Keanu was actually there for like two years. <laughs> <laughs> that he's failed his job the first two summers and there's yeah. only on the third summer he finally got them. Yep. Thanks for uh, thanks for letting me come and do a point break. It was nice to yes. It's nice to revisit a movie that I should have probably revisited more recently than this. Yeah, and I had not seen this in, in years, maybe a decade, too. Just because it's one of those movies I, I know so well as a teenager. And I was a little ambivalent about it this time because I wasn't sure if I was going to like it necessarily. But it's even better because I watched the remake. That okay. It made me realize how good this one actually is. Yeah, I mean, this I've only I saw this for the first time, like, six years ago. So I've seen it four times, including then. I saw the most recently just a couple of months ago with the live score. I mean, it's never going to be better than that, but this is a movie that I probably could or should or will watch like once a year forever. It's just wonderful. I love it. So for all things Keanu Club, all things Cage Club, all things Now and Again, hey. everything on our network, you can go to cageclub.me or facebook.com slash cageclub. You can do all sorts of fun stuff. You can find out about Chris's new podcast. Catch those first two episodes now two episodes a month from here on until he catches up to all the Now That's What I Call Music. But I feel like there's always like, Now That's What I Call Christmas, and you have all those different things, so you'll never run out. No. You will probably kill yourself before... Good chance. (laughs) Before the actual catch up. I go right off into a 50-year storm. I'm Joey Lewandowski. And I'm Mike Manzi. And that was Chris Mattiello, and we'll see you next time on Key the Club. Keep on haunting me.
Utah, give me two. <laughs> 